The year was 1943, and the United States had been officially involved in World War II for 19 months. When a secret meeting was held in Washington, D.C., May of 1943, attended by Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt, they met on and off for two weeks in Washington in May of that year, and the purpose of their meeting was to discuss plans for the invasion of Europe in the subsequent year. This was no small undertaking because the English Channel had not been successfully crossed by an invading force for centuries. So the thought of invading France from England was a major endeavor. In that meeting in 1943, in the spring, Dwight David Eisenhower was named as the Supreme Allied Commander for the operation. It subsequently commenced on the 6th of June in 1944 at what you and I know as D-Day. Officially, it was known as Operation Overlord or the Battle for Normandy. It began, as I say, on the 6th of June, and the battle officially came to a conclusion on the 30th of August in 1944, when Allied forces had successfully crossed the River Seine. It was a massive, massive undertaking. It involved 1,200 airborne planes for airborne assault to soften up the, the battlefield, as it were. There were 5,000 vessels involved in transporting troops and materiel across the English Channel. 160,000 Allied troops landed on the beaches of Normandy in that one day. Subsequent troop buildup, by the time the battle officially drew to its close, exceeded 2 million Allied soldiers had made their way into France. It was probably one of the most Uh, complex military campaigns, really, in human history. Operation Overlord. Beloved, when you go into battle, you have to have a battle plan. And it has to be a good one. And when you battle against sin, there is the same need for a plan. You attempt to battle sin without a plan you will surely fail. God gives us a plan for battling sin, and we will find it in the text before us this morning. So open to the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we will take it up at verse 17. Been a month or so since we have looked at this great letter together, and so it's probably a good idea to reorient ourselves in the letter before we forge forward. The letter is structured pretty simply 
There are six chapters, and it divides nicely into three and three. The first three chapters are the theologically um, foundational section of the letter, and it is Paul's theological explanation for the church. The church is made up of individuals chosen by the loving, sovereign election of God the Father, redeemed through the atoning sacrifice of God the Son, and forged into one new man through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. That's the basic message of chapters 1 through 3. This one new man, this new society, is made up of Jew and Gentile as fellow heirs, equally beloved by the Father. And it is this new society, the church, that displays God's eternal purposes for the ages. In light of the theological transformation that Paul explains in chapters 1 through 3, he turns here in chapter 4 and begins to take up the ethical obligations of this new society. How is it that we, as a church of Jesus Christ, are to operate? And he does so through the repeated use of the word walk. The word walk is a key word for chapters 4, 5, and 6. Peripateo is the Greek verb, and it refers to how we live our lives together. Specifically, Paul says in verses 1 through 16 that we are to walk in unity. We are to walk together in unity. In verses 17 through 32, he says we are to walk in holiness. We are to walk in holiness. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, that we are to walk in love. We're to walk in love. Chapter 5, verses 7 through 14, that we are to walk in light. Walk in light. And then finally, chapter 5, verse 15 through chapter 6, verse 9, the final section of the letter that we are to walk in wisdom. We're to walk in wisdom. And so that's how we're going to approach this second half of the letter. We have had an extended study of walking in unity. We've spent a number of weeks studying what it means to walk in unity. Now we are to take up the next topic together, and that is walking in holiness. What does it mean to walk in holiness? We're going to do it by looking first at verses 17 through 24 of chapter 4. Under a a sermon title of a Christian battle plan. So we'll begin this morning with it. We're not going to be able to finish it all. But it is entitled a Christian battle plan. Verses 17 through 24. And then verses 25 through 32. Under the same rubric here of walking in holiness. We will take up the practical examples that Paul provides for us. In verses 25 to 32 of What does it mean? How does it look? How does it work itself out? 
this battle plan for holiness. Now, it's interesting and instructive, I think, for us to recognize that as Paul puts this letter together, that the discussion of holiness follows immediately on the heels of a discussion of unity. And that it is unity that has a logical uh, uh, connection to a discussion of holiness. And it goes like this. Since we are one body, mutually dependent on each other and growing together in the likeness of Christ, you can see that in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 4, growing together in the likeness of Christ, because that is true, therefore how we live in terms of our holiness is a necessary concern of the entire Christian community. What I mean by that is that holiness is a topic that concerns all of us, each and every one of us. There is an intensely personal side to our holiness that that Paul addresses here, but there is very much a community orientation as well. Holiness is a concern for the church, for the church. Sin in the camp, to use an Old Testament expression, brings disunity and weakens the witness of the people of God to the world. Therefore, to be part of the body of Christ and yet to continue to live as if we belonged to the world is a contradiction and is a contradiction that cannot go unaddressed. Cannot go unaddressed. Holiness is a community matter. It is a community matter. Now the heart of Paul's instruction here in verses 17 through 24 is found in verses 22 and 24 and in the language of putting off and putting on. You see it in verse 22, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside or put off the old self. Some translations, the old man. And verse 24, that you put on the new self or put on the new man. This is a metaphor, putting off, putting on. It's a metaphor of a coat, a set of clothes, that you are to take off the old clothes and to put on the new clothes. Paul uses this metaphor, in fact, the exact same language over in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. I'm not going to turn you there um, for the sake of time, but, but he uses the same terminology there, but, but he speaks of it there as a, a positional truth. In other words, of, of a reality that has already occurred by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ. There he would say, having put off the old man behaves like this, having put on Christ, behave like this. So he uses it there in Colossians positionally. We get the same kind of idea in Romans 6 where he says, you have died with Christ, you have been raised with Christ, therefore, and he will talk ethically of how we're to live. That's different than what he is going to do here in Ephesians. So the language is very, very close, but it is not identical. 
Here in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul will, will address the same topic, but he will do so here from the viewpoint of our ethical responsibility. Not what has occurred, but what we are to do. We are to put off. We are to put on. And how Paul speaks here carries the force of a command to be obeyed. So here it is the imperative. Over in Colossians 3, it is the indicative. The indicative always precedes the imperative, but here we're dealing with the imperative. So this is going to be about commands. Okay? But of course, the power to fulfill these commands comes only because of our position as united with Jesus Christ in the one new man. So, who is this series for? Who is the target audience that we're going to be have in mind here, we're going to focus on as we look at verses 17, ultimately through verse 32. Here's who it's for. It is for those of you out there this morning who are lukewarm in your faith. Lukewarm in your faith and sliding into sin. This is for you. It is also for those of you who are presently caught in the snare of sin and can't get out. This is for those of you out here this morning who are working with someone who is battling sin. This series this morning is for each and every one of us in our own self-diagnosis and assessing the remedy for our own battle with sin and temptation. And this message is for the unbeliever here with us this morning who is painfully aware of the fact that they are trapped in sin and they are, have no ability to stop. I think I have covered everybody. Everybody. This series is for all of us. It may apply a little bit differently depending on where you find yourself. But Paul's words here are for all of us. Solomon says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Sin, first and foremost, is a battle that begins and is won or lost internally before it manifests itself in behavior. Paul is going to make very, very clear for us here in this section of Ephesians that the battle with sin is first and foremost a battle for the mind. For the mind. That's where it will be won. That's where it will be lost. How you and I think directly influences how you and I behave. 
And we can see this very clearly here in the eight verses, verses 17 through 24, where Paul uses 11 words that relate to the mind and its functioning. So let me show you this. The very word mind itself, it's used in verse 17. The futility of their mind, it's used in verse 23, renewed in the spirit of your mind. The word mind. The word understanding appears in verse 18, darkened in their understanding. The word ignorance is used in verse 18 because of the ignorance that is in them. The word learn is used in verse 20. You did not learn Christ in this way. The word heard in verse 21, if indeed you have heard him. The word taught, verse 21, and have been taught in him. And the word truth, which is used in verse 21 and 24, right? The truth is in Jesus, and God has created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The word hearts is used in um, verse 18, the hardness of heart. And then finally in verse 19, the word callous is used. So if I've covered them all, that's 11 usages of words that all deal with the mind or how we think and the functioning of the mind. So the battle begins in the mind. And Paul gives us here in verses 17 through 24, here's the big idea, a six-part battle plan. A six-part battle plan for waging a successful war against sin. That's where we're going. All right, 17 through 24, a six-part battle plan. Verses 25 to 32, when we get there, will be the practical implementation of that plan. So let's take a look at the text together. Verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness, but you did not learn Christ in this manner or in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So it's a six-part battle plan for waging a successful war against sin. Part one, step one of this battle plan is to reaffirm your commitment to Christ. It begins here. The first part of the plan 
for the successful waging of a battle against sin is to reaffirm your commitment to Christ. Verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. Paul begins his instruction here regarding the distinctively Christian life by speaking to them with the utmost solemnity. He is very, very concerned for them here. And he gives them a very, very serious command. This is not a suggestion. This is, this is not something that can be ignored. This is not something that can be taken half-heartedly. This is a very, very serious piece of instruction for us. The seriousness of it can, can be seen, uh, this whole section about walking in holiness, you can see the seriousness of, it all, seriousness of it all by the way Paul opens it up here. And notice, he, do, he doesn't just merely say, he doesn't just say to the readers, right, no longer walk as the Gentiles walk, but, but notice what he does is he enlists Christ in support of what he says. You see it here? For this I say and affirm together with the Lord. So he brings Christ alongside in order to to convey the seriousness of what he is about to say to us here. He wants the reader to recognize the reality of what he is about to say doesn't just come through him, although that should be plenty, as a spokesman for Christ, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he conveys the idea that it comes from Christ through him to them. It's directly from Christ through the pen of Paul to them and to you and I. Beyond that, the the word that's translated here in the New American Standard by affirm Maturomai is the, is the Greek word. It's a very, very solemn term. A very solemn term. And we, we know or, or we're told that it, it was used to put people on notice that they must carry out a, a particular behavior or there'd be very serious consequences that would come to them. So this kind of, this kind of term, when it was used in Greek society conveyed the solemnity of the commands that follow. We could translate the maturamai with the word insist. So rather than affirm, we could, we could translate it legitimately as insist. So this I say and insist together with the Lord. And maybe that helps convey the idea of how important it is of what he's about to say. He insists on this. And what is it that he's insisting on? He's insisting that the attitudes and conduct of the believing community, the new man, the new society, be different from the pagans around them. And he bases this command upon the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, beloved, this is important. Recognizing the lordship of Jesus Christ and all of its implications for life is one of the defining marks of what it means to be Christian. 
Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That was given in his teaching about foundations, right? A foundation of rock and a foundation of sand. And in that context there where Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? He reveals that at the end when the storm comes, and it's a storm of God's judgment, that when it comes, those whose house is built upon the rock of the Lordship of Jesus Christ will stand, and those that are built on anything else will be swept away. What this means is that living under the Lordship of Christ means we have to live very, very differently from all those who refuse the Lordship of Christ. As we're going to see here as this, this battle plan unfolds, that this is, this is way deeper than simply amending our behavior. Okay, this is not about behavior modification. What Paul is going to address here is the far deeper issue, and that is changing the way we think about life. That's what's involved here. It's, it's a transformation of how we think about life. And when that changes, then there will be deep and permanent change in our ethics and how we live our life. And it will begin to come out as the Lord would require. So therefore, the first step of the battle plan, the very first step of the battle plan, think of it like a military operation. You've got to accumulate um, men and material, right? You have to have logistics. So in a sense here, the, the battle plan begins, successfully begins, by reaffirming our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. It begins there. Without that necessary step, all else will be lost. What does it mean to reaffirm your commitment to Christ? Well, what it means is to accept what he says is true because he says it. Believe that his ways are best even when they go against the, the deepest longings of our hearts or the passions of our nature. We need to recommit, reaffirm our commitment to Jesus Christ. Step number one. Step number two. Step number two is we need to recognize the destructiveness of sin. Reaffirm our commitment to Christ. Step number two is to recognize the destructiveness of sin. So this I say, verse 17, and affirm or insist together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. And here it is. He begins to to detail their destructiveness in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Paul spells out here in very, very stark terms 
the life of the unbeliever. The life of one who is separated from God because they are not united by faith with God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a life from which these Ephesian believers have been converted. This is a Gentile church primarily. And they have been drawn out of the, of the most vile and wicked practices. You remember that over in, in Acts chapter 19, Luke describes for us there the behaviors, including their involvement in the occult and all kinds of debauched practices. It was a temple of Diana, a sex goddess. The, the place was inundated with temple prostitutes. It was debauchery and it was depravity it, it, an unbelievable level, kind of like Los Angeles in the 21st century. And so Paul says to these converted Gentiles, those that have been delivered by faith in Christ, that they need to be different from all those who have not been delivered. Because the unbelieving are ungodly, and this is what Paul will say here, is ungodly in their thinking, which results in them being ungodly in their lifestyle. And he does it here through a fourfold indictment. As we go through this, you will probably hear in your mind the echoes of the first chapter of his letter to the church at Rome, where he does a similar uh, kind of thing, where he, he details the the downward descent, the deep, dark spiral into sin for those who are without Christ. So he begins here in the second half of verse 17 in the indictment, and he says the unbeliever is futile in their thinking. Right? They are futile here in their mind, it says. This word translated futility, mateates, uh, can also be translated meaningless, meaningless. And it's actually used that way in the, in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, right? In Ecclesiastes, you know the refrain, life is vanity or meaningless without God. The attempt to live life without the fear of the Lord is a life of vanity, a life of meaninglessness, a life of Futility. Because the unbeliever has been cut off from God, their ability to make like work out has been severely damaged. It's become futile. And this is because their mind has been rendered, look at it there, verse 17, their mind has been rendered vain, meaningless, or futile. On the war, the, the idea of the mind here. What Paul is talking about is their, is their ability and their capacity to plan, to think, to make moral judgments and appropriate lifestyle choices. Paul says the mind that has been separated from God, the mind that has not been renewed in Christ, is a mind that is not capable of making sense out of life. It leads to a meaningless life, a futile life, a vain life. The same word translated in the verbal form, mateao, translated over in Romans 1. Maybe we'll just go there one time. 
Romans 1, verse 21, Paul uses the same cognate, he uses it in a verbal form there, in verse 21, to speak of the same thing, the futility that describes the state of the unbeliever who refuses to thank and honor God, even though they know deep down inside that God exists and he deserves to be worshipped. That's Paul's indictment. Verse 21, Romans 1. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile, there as it is, in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corrupted man and birds and 440 animals and crawling creatures and so forth. It's the same idea here. Hey, the foolish heart, the futile mind, the heart, the mind, they're, they're speaking about the same basic idea. They can be used interchangeably here. It's that part of the person that is, that is responsible to make lifestyle choices. So, for the mind separated from God, it is meaningless, it is vain, it is futile. Second, verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding. Verse 18. Being darkened in their understanding. Why is the mind uh, futile that is without Christ? Why is the mind vain or meaningless that is without Christ? And the answer is, is because it is darkened. In other words, it is spiritually blind. It is living in moral darkness. You see that over in verse 8 of chapter 5. You can just kind of peek over there, where Paul says, you were formerly darkness, same word. You are now light in the Lord, walk as children of light. The idea is that they cannot understand because they cannot see. And they're under the influences of the present evil age and even the demonic realm that, that runs rampant in this present evil age. Again, you see these these ideas connecting for him in chapter 6, verse 12. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. Same idea. The spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You see over in chapter 2 and uh, verse 2, where he talks about how they once... Uh, formerly walked walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, right? The spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So the idea back there when we looked at it is that, that the demonic realm and Satan himself energizes and, and enslaves the unbelieving mind. So darkness, meaninglessness, Darkness, third, third indictment in verse 18, they are alienated or excluded from the life of God. You see it there, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They are cut off, the unbeliever is cut off, and the unbelieving mind is cut off from the life of God. All life originates with God. He is the source of life. Again, just keeping this letter tied together, chapter 2, verse 1, right? You were formerly dead in your trespasses and sins. You were formerly without life. Now you have been made alive in Christ. But 
what you formerly were is how the world without Christ is. They are cut off from the life of God. They are outside the family of God. And they have no true life. The picture is, is one of misery, of, of death. And notice that Paul attributes here, verse 18, chapter 4, he attributes the, the lifelessness of the unbeliever to their own ignorance and their hardness of heart. So it's a, it's a combination of inability and, and, a, and a willfulness to, to ignore what light is available. Fourth, having become callous, they greedily pursue sin. Verse 19, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Paul's final indictment here of the, of the one outside of Christ is that they have lost their ability to feel pain. When you build up a callus on your hand or your foot or wherever, then the nerves there in that skin as it has become thickened become dead and unresponsive. You don't feel it anymore. And what Paul says is that that is the state of the unbelieving mind is they just don't feel things anymore. They become dead to their own feelings and and there is now this impenetrable shell that renders them insensitive to God. They just, they can't feel him. And in this condition, Paul goes on to say that they have given themselves over to a reckless and obsessive pursuit of sensuality and debauchery. I mean, this is a horrendous indictment of the life outside of Christ. In Galatians chapter 5, I will turn you there, we see similar kinds of language beginning in verse 19. Galatians chapter 5 and beginning in verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's why this is so Serious. So serious. Back to Ephesians. Paul's conclusion here is that the, those outside of Christ, for those outside of Christ, the pursuit of pleasure has become the driving influence of their life. Their lives are about the pursuit of pleasure. They live for themselves. To live for themselves. And to live for yourself is incompatible with one who has been chosen by God 
saved by grace through faith, according to chapter 2 and verse 10, for good works. We have been created for those good works. In other words, we have been created to recreate it in Christ to live for other people, to love and serve other people. That's what we have been saved to and saved for. And so to live for ourselves, to pursue greedily our own fleshly passions and and so forth is to live in complete contradiction to our new status in Christ, and that is not acceptable. And in fact, it is spiritually reckless and exceedingly dangerous. This is the state of the unredeemed mind, sold into bondage to sin and self. Futile, darkened, lifeless, and greedy. Now, you may ask, is Paul saying everybody outside of Christ is like that? No. What he is saying is that not everybody is as as bad as they could be, but everybody is as bad off as they can be. In other words, the capacity to, to live like this lies in the unbelieving heart and mind. Yes, some unbelievers live with a measure of outward virtue, to be sure. Some live what we might call a noble life. But ultimately... Theologically, what Paul would say is their refusal of the lordship of Christ renders their life meaningless or vain, and ultimately they are driven by their passions. And the capacity to to descend down into the vile behaviors that, that that he's laid out here lies close at hand. That's scary stuff. That's scary stuff. Beloved, Paul, or excuse me, not Paul, but, but the scriptures. <laughs> the scriptures make clear there are only two ways to live. There are only two ways to live. We either live for God in Christ or we live for ourselves. There are two paths, and you are on either one or the other. Because the two paths diverge and move in diametrically opposite directions. At first, one might think they could straddle the two paths, but it's not possible. Again, hear the words of Solomon. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. It shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The path of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. The path of life is like walking into the sun as it's rising. It grows brighter and brighter and brighter. 
To refuse the path of life is to walk into an ever-increasing darkness. If you're living in darkness this morning, if you are presently on the path of darkness, it's one of two reasons. It's either you have not yet made a faith commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. You have not yet relented of trying to work life your own way and called upon Christ to save you. Or it's because you have neglected the faith commitment you once made. In either case, you need to hear my words to you right now. The way of the treacherous is hard. The way of the treacherous is hard. The sooner you recognize that, and the sooner you turn and flee to the cross of Christ, the sooner the new life begins. The sooner you get a fresh start at things, the sooner you will escape the bondage to futility that presently controls you. May the Spirit of God apply the truth of what we have heard. Let's pray. Father, this was a heavy message this morning. A heavy message because it's, it deals with heavy subjects that's so important. Lord, just the ever-present threat of sin and temptation, the, the ever ongoing lying of our own hearts, the the passions of our flesh. As a child of God, they, they pull at us, they tug at us, they lie to us. And Father, we confess that at times we give in. And so, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would apply this truth to your children this morning and Perhaps that one out there who it's still unknown to the body because it's the, the slippage is going on in their own mind, in their own heart. It's, it's unknown by anyone but they and, and you alone. Lord, may you use your, your word this morning. May your spirit apply it to their hearts. May you, en- may you enable them to reaffirm their commitment to Christ and, and to just take a good, hard, and honest look at the futility of the life of unbelief. And may you help them to turn and come back to the cross. Father, we need this truth, all of us, day to day, moment by moment. Father, for that one sitting here this morning who doesn't know Christ, 
perhaps a young person growing up in a Christian home, attending Sunday school faithfully for years, part of Awana, from the outside looking in, a good kid and yet lost. Rebellion in their heart, wickedness in their minds, sinning and unable to stop, vile in their thoughts. O Lord, may you rescue them. May you bring them to the end of themselves today. May they turn to Christ and be saved. Perhaps for that older person, maybe near the end of their life, thinking everything's fine. I've been going to church all my life. And yet, deep down inside, they know something's seriously wrong. Oh Lord, may you deliver them this day. For Jesus' sake, amen.